0: Thank you guys for tuning in today and welcome to another episode of The Source. I'm your host, Sain Raza. And today I'm happy to welcome physician, activist, and former presidential candidate of the Green Party USA, Dr. Jill Stein. Jill Stein, welcome back to the show.
1: My pleasure, my honor. Great to be with you, Sain.
0: Let us begin the segment with the Ukraine. We've had a wide range of opinions on this matter on our show, from Noam Chomsky, Vijay Prashad, Chris Hedges, Peter Kozlak, and it would be great to get your perspective as well. Denazification and demilitarization was Russia's justification for war. Do you think these reasons had any legitimacy?
1: Yes, not in the eyes of international law. The criteria for war were not met. That is, uh, an imminent threat of invasion. Um, That criteria was not met. However, certainly Russia. has been under existential threats and to summarize it you know in a nutshell this is like the cuban missile crisis but in reverse uh when russia established nuclear weapons uh, like 100 miles off of our shore we said no way and we were ready to pull out all the stops to go to nuclear war if necessary and kennedy threatened that khrushchev had the good sense to say okay let's sit down and negotiate, which they did. Russia removed its missiles. The U.S. also removed its missiles, which you could say instigated the crisis by the U.S. placing nuclear missiles in Turkey to start with, and other places around Europe. So, um, you know, there was a there was a tit for tat going on there, and Russia had the good sense to say, "Okay, we've crossed your red line. We're going to back off." The problem now is that um, Russia has made quite clear that it deserved no less security than what the U.S. was asking for uh, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And this comes up now because the U.S. has unfortunately been in the business of dismantling our nuclear treaties, and most recently the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, which Trump pulled out of, in 2019, but you can go all the way back to 2001, I believe, when George Bush pulled out of the uh, ABM, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. Had those treaties been in place, this problem wouldn't have happened. And NATO could have expanded all they wanted, but NATO did not, would not have brought the threat of imminent nuclear uh, catastrophe that it NATO expansion means now, especially in moving to a government which is essentially hostile to russia and the you know the Russian invasion didn't occur out of the blue. This was sort of the latest step in an accelerating series of conflicts, particularly since 2014 when uh, Victoria Newland was there handing out cookies um, to protesters but it wasn't just protesters there was you know it was a complex event where there was there was a democratic uh, grassroots movement but it was also heavily infiltrated by uh, extreme right-wing Nazi uh, neo-Nazi whatever you want to call them forces that have had enormous influence ever since and the world heard Victoria Nuland deciding who the next leaders of Ukraine would be on that uh, leaked phone call. Um, So there have been a series of incursions, uh, or shall we say growing threats, to Russia's security and sovereignty. Russia made absolutely clear that this was its red line, it offered to negotiate Many times, including just prior to the invasion, when it presented a whole proposal for a non-militarized security arrangement, for Europe. I mean, isn't that what the EU was supposed to have been? Wasn't the European Union supposed to be a non-military framework for uh, European relations? And, you know, buried in the history books is the fact that Russia actually tried to join NATO way back when its, um, you know, its counterpart uh, had been dissolved. So there were offers of conciliation uh, from Russia all along, and Russia became, shall we say, aggressive about its border, um, you could say in in uh, Georgia, uh, and likewise in Ukraine. That's not to justify this horrific war which is rolling out in front of all the TV cameras and in front of our very eyes. It is a horrific war, but it is a war that could have been avoided in the blink of an eye had the U.S. uh, and the West and NATO, which is definitely subservient to the U.S., which is funded largely by the U.S., um, which is an enormous boondoggle For the U.S. weapons industry, when you join NATO, for those who don't know, when you join NATO, you have to um, agree to spend something like two or it might even be three percent right now of whether it's your budget, or your GDP, I don't recall, but it's a big chunk of change. You need to spend on what? On U.S. weapons. So, you know, this is a complete boondoggle for the U.S. weapons industry, which is the real winner here. And. I think it's really important for people to think not so much which side are you on you know are you on the side of of uh, the west or the side of russia but are you on the side of you know of a a peaceful future of uh, diplomacy are you on the side of non-militarized relations because inside of this framework of nato uh, it's it's a disaster from the get-go, and um, there is you know it, it's not a solvable problem from within the framework of the U.S. empire. And if I could point out one other very uh, important dimension to the threat to Russia, that is the U.S. policy that has been articulated over and over again since 1992, since the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union. The U.S. has repeatedly articulated its military policy of um, what's called full spectrum dominance, which means not only that the U.S. will dominate All potential spaces, the economic, the cyber, the um, actual, you know, outer space, um, underwater, the sea surface, uh, land, you name it. it. That policy says we must dominate all those spaces, but it also says that we will tolerate no economic competition. And if a country has sufficient access to resources, land, uh, energy, and so on, Uh, if a country has sufficient access to resources, that um, they will not be permitted to rise. So starting in 1992, the Pentagon articulated a policy, which was published right there in the New York Times, saying that we will not tolerate competitors. And that is what The U.S. has said consistently, uh, again, most clearly in 2017 with its uh, policy on uh, it had a name um, to a similar effect that uh, in this new world order of rising competition, it would not be tolerated. It would not be tolerated from hostile forces and it would also not be tolerated uh, from friendly forces. Friendly countries also are not allowed to become powerful enough that they could threaten uh, U.S. domination. Um, Full spectrum domination is what it's about. That is, you know, also referred to as kind of the the monopolar as opposed to the multipolar view of the world. You know, it's like grow up here. You know, let's grow up. Let's be an adult because um, dominating, you know, being the sole uh, bully in the classroom or bully in the schoolyard does not work well in today's day and age where we need to cooperate. We need to cooperate if we are going to deal with the catastrophic climate crisis that is unrolling uh, before our very eyes right now or the nuclear weapons crisis, or the economic crisis, where 350 million people right now are experiencing food security. 50 million are on the verge of starvation, actual starvation, including some seven and eight million in each of Yemen and Afghanistan, where the US could simply you know, stop its oppression or release the economic, you know, the foreign reserves uh, of Afghanistan. People are starving and we're holding on to their foreign reserves. It's just unthinkable what's going on right now. The, the application of U.S. sanctions to something like one out of every three human beings uh, on the planet you know, this is blowing back at us right now in a very big way, not only with the discord in Europe, uh, the, you know, the strike last week uh, in Italy, the the general strike, uh, public opinion, which is uh, uh, taking a nosedive, the support for the war, the outrageous fuel costs where Europe is expected to pay something like four to five times the cost of fossil fuel in order to buy U.S. fuels, where the U.S. declared it and tremendous opportunity that, oh, somehow the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline had gone away exactly as Joe Biden said it would if there was a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine that pipeline is going to go away. And then it goes away. And then uh, Anthony Blinken declares it a tremendous opportunity. We're now number one. Europe has no choice but to uh, buy our uh, extremely expensive uh, LNG. And by the way, the U.S. is now building nine new LNG export facilities and Europe is building nine or so import. LNG facilities. This is an absolute disaster for the climate. It commits us to fossil fuels for years going forward. The bottom line here is that we need a non-militarized framework going forward. That needs to begin with restoring the nuclear treaties with a a ceasefire immediately. Uh, Let's have a Christmas ceasefire uh, in Ukraine and then creating a framework that provides security both for Ukraine for the breakaway provinces in the East uh, and for Russia. This is not rocket science. This can be done. Uh, We managed to do this even in the height of the Cold War. We can do this again.
0: You talked about this being uh, taking sides either the US or Russian, that's also the media atmosphere at the moment in Germany. Um, uh, If you provide context and understanding to this conflict, you are deemed as justifying the conflict. Um, How's the situation in the US and why do you think this binary framework of good and evil or taking sides between Russia and uh, the US instead of looking at humanity as a whole is being pushed as a narrative in the mainstream media and political discourse?
1: You know, to step back and look at the big picture, um, what is really going on here, at least as, you know, as far as I can tell, is that we have really end-stage capitalism and end-stage empire kind of converging here, so that... Most of our institutions, whether you're looking at uh, mainstream media or you are looking at our educational institutions, our economy, um, uh, you know, our environmental uh, regulations, you know, they've really been hijacked. Or you can even look at our public health regulations. Across the board, people have lost confidence and lost faith in the fundamental institutions of democracy. Um, I'm Quite familiar with the polls here in this country. I don't know what they are in Europe, but here there's been a complete loss of faith. And for the media, for example, I think the latest figures are in the teens. That is the level of confidence. Confidence in the Supreme Court has plummeted and is running like in the 20s now. Um, You know, this has been kind of a progressive process here in this country as, as Uh, Economic power has concentrated increasingly in the hands of a few very rich oligarchs where three billionaires now in the U.S. have the wealth and resources of uh, 50%. Three people have the equivalent of the lower 50%. Wealth and power is extremely concentrated and is growing by the hour. In the last couple of years, in fact, um, the kind of COVID economy years, which hasn't just been COVID, but that's certainly been a part of it, we've seen that trend accelerate and you've seen corporate profits go through the roof. And this has been now uh, even worsened with the war where the cost of, um, well, shall we say the profits of the fossil fuel and uh, weapons industries have just gone sky high. They've, they've doubled. So basically to look uh So to take the look from the view from outer space, money and power has been concentrating in very few hands. And in the words of a famous uh, U.S. Supreme Court justice, we have a choice between extreme concentrations of wealth or democracy. You can't have both. So our institutions have been fundamentally de-democratized. Not that they've ever been perfect, but they've sure been better than what they are right now. So on every score, um, the people are losing Uh, And to look at the polls, the people are not happy about this in the same way that uh, substantial majorities are now calling for negotiations uh, and a diplomatic, an immediate diplomatic solution to Ukraine, even if it means making compromises with Russia. People are not stupid here, but our leaders are on the payroll of the industries that really want to kind of stay the course, whether it's war, uh, etc. You know, there was a, um, a reception that was just held at the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, D.C., and this was just before uh, Zelensky came for his visit, and whose logos were all over the invitation. It was the weapons industry, you know, it was Raytheon and, and, and the likes Um, who are sponsoring this stuff. Well, it's the weapons industry who are showering Congress with campaign contributions, who have far more lobbyists on Capitol Hill than we have actual representatives. So our political institutions have been bought and paid for. And it's not just a crisis of peace, uh, of uh, nuclear weapons, uh, of Armageddon. That's one of many crises. You know I, I think of this, you know, if you're to apply the, um, uh, the medical model here, the patient is in the intensive care unit, and the patient has multi-system failure. Failure of any one of those systems is absolutely deadly and lethal, whether it's the climate, whether it's the economy that can no longer sustain working people, uh, whether it's our educational institutions with some 43 million uh, young people locked into student debt, it's our healthcare system for sure in this country where. You know, one out of every three COVID deaths is linked to a lack of health insurance where 70 people die on an annual basis for not having health insurance in the wealthiest country in the history of the planet. You know, so we are having profound multi-system failure. And, you know, in the same way that there was a massive uh, global movement that established the internuclear forces uh, treaty the inf treaty came subsequent to a million people coming out to central park in uh new york city back in 1982. your point about the media is huge here because if we don't have a media to clarify what's going on you know and we don't have an economy in which people have the leisure time to even figure out what's happening, you know, because not everybody can be a news junkie like us, you know, and dig this out, you know, becomes a very self-perpetuating cycle. But I want to emphasize the good, the good news here is that um, people get it, you know, and even with wall-to-wall propaganda trying to manufacture consent around Ukraine, people do not consent. They do not consent. They do not consent on virtually every one of the major uh, mainstream media uh, propaganda campaigns. People didn't have to read the uh, the Twitter disclosures to learn that there's, you know, enormous uh, what should we say, um, stranglehold of our media by our intelligence and security services, which was demonstrated. You know, in uh, recently in in some of the uh, Twitter disclosures, you know, you didn't have to read about that to know what's going on. People have totally lost confidence. And I think this is this is our challenge. You know, our challenge for now and for the future, if we're to have a future, is to be able to work together outside of these institutions that have been hijacked on the part of oligarchy and empire.
0: You mentioned that in the past, millions of people went out on the streets in New York um, to voice anti-war sentiments. Uh, the same we saw in Germany in the 80s that the Green Party here was very active uh, to avoid a nuclear confrontation between the Soviet Union and the United States. In the US and Germany, large parts of the left have abandoned this anti-war stance. Even the so-called Progressive Caucuses are no longer questioning US involvement in Ukraine or in the South China Sea. Why do you think No one is at least debating and questioning U.S. involvement and pushing for uh, diplomacy. Are there any voices left in the U.S. that are addressing this vacuum?
1: Um, You know, I think it is a symbol of how thoroughly corrupt our political institutions have been and how captured they are by the stranglehold of big money, which gets bigger every year, so that even the progressive caucus you know, has to withdraw their very timid letter that dares to mention um, negotiations, where Bernie Sanders had to basically withdraw his proposal to stop the war in Yemen. Um, You know, it's just uh, it's really across the board where the progressive, you know, the so-called squad in um, in the U.S. couldn't bear to force a vote. Uh, on, on Medicare for All or whatever it was, I think it was Medicare for All, it might have been the public option, but you know it was some little step towards health care. Um, the political class uh, is really a creature of the economic elite. We have an economic and political elite in this country and throughout much of the West and it is, um, it is driving us over a cliff. And I think it's increasingly becoming a matter of just uh, self-preservation and survival that people have to defy that. You know, um, as Greens here in this country where we are very anti-war, we have the occasional uh, exception who is um, – you know, they're moderately pro-war, they support um, uh, weapons for Ukraine. But uh, outside of an exception or two, we are extremely anti-war in this country. And, you know, as our, our various uh, parties uh, who are our partners in the socialist world, and we are all uniformly uh, suppressed and silenced, uh, basically blocked. The Democrats. Uh, tried to illegally throw our candidates off the ballot, and they sometimes get away with it. Sometimes we can fight it in court, but actually, in the state of New York, it's harder to get on the ballot than it is in in Moscow. You know, so it's just it's pathetic, it's preposterous, it's incredibly hypocritical. We who pretend to be this great uh, proponent of human rights and uh, free speech, you know. It's uh, it's a joke. J- Julian Assange really is kind of a symbol of how much uh, free speech uh, you know, our government is is uh, it's willing to allow. So, yeah, uh, it's it's extremely um, what should we say? It's crazy making. It's not something one can make sense out of. It is something I think one shouldn't try to make sense out of. I think, the, um, the onus is on us to organize and to uh, throw the bums out, um, you know, through whatever peaceful means necessary. Many of us here in the U.S. Uh, believe that a, uh, a general strike of some sort is going to be inevitable. We're seeing that right now with the railway workers who've been denied their right to strike, and because. Uh, you know, because the uh, the industry, which is the most profitable industry in the U.S., the railway industry is the most profitable, um, because they know that they have the government as their backstop, they never have to negotiate in good faith. And, uh, you know, life is a living hell for workers in the rail industry in this country, and you know, and in the service industry at Starbucks, at Amazon, um, and our ability to organize is, uh, you know, people have one hand tied behind their back. This is not a situation that can last very long. I think as uh, John Kennedy said something like, you know, if you make peaceful revolution impossible, you make violent revolution inevitable. And um, clearly we are heading in a very um, concerning direction, uh, whatever parameter you look at. And, you know, if I can mention again on the climate, because it, it gets, the emergency of the war keeps pushing it to the back burner. But, you know, the climate, which is what the Green Party is supposed to be all about, back to your question of, you know, what what's the status of the Green Party here? You know, the climate is in incredibly dire straits. We need a real Green Party. You know, we need Green Parties that are not compromised by, uh, you know, by, by funding, by whatever political machinations may be going on, and I don't pretend to know the situation very well in Germany, um, but... You know, Greens uh, need to be anti-war and they need to be uh, pro-climate. And on both of those counts right now, we are facing a dire emergency. There was a headline uh, just last week, maybe two weeks ago, in the Washington Post that said a – these are the words that they use – a complete doomsday scenario – is expected in the colorado river now why the colorado river is really important is that it supplies the california agriculture system which in turn supplies half of the fruits and vegetables for this country so we are on the verge of a real acceleration of the climate crisis and the food crisis you know with costs just skyrocketing all over the world, including in this country. It's about to get a whole lot worse. And what are we doing? We are accelerating the use of fossil fuels here for the long haul, for decades to come. We are supposed to be at, um, uh, what is it, Um, 45% reduction in um, greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 if we're going to make it out of here alive. Where are we now on that chart? We're not getting to 45% reduction. We're on target for an 11% increase. This is another catastrophe of the war. The war, aside from escalating the release of fossil fuels enormously, it makes it impossible to have the global cooperation that's necessary if we are to survive the climate crisis. So, in short, we need to refocus from... Uh, a uh, war on each other to a war against climate change, which creates jobs, which creates justice and which creates a, a, a livable planet within the framework of a revived democracy. That won't happen just for asking nicely. This is why, inevitably, I think we are heading for a general strike.
0: You mentioned the German Green Party. I can already tell you their policy stance is... Uh, our foreign minister, Analia Baerbock, also already said that uh, sh- Germany or our policy should be to ruin uh, Russia. Um, and there have been a lot of hard positions uh, being exposed in this crisis. Um, one would expect uh, uh, the Ukraine crisis, be a call for diplomacy. If you look at it from the green perspective, uh, you already mentioned uh, how much dependency on the fossil fuel is increasing. If you look at it from the social democratic uh, perspective, we can see how much money is flowing away from the economy towards war. If you look at it from the right-wing pro-business perspective, we can also see that a lot of uh, the economy is getting affected, inflation and prices. So from all political uh, perspectives, one would... Could should have come from the conclusion that peace and diplomacy should be at least tried. So it's easy to say the word diplomacy and peace. Could you talk about what a policy framework, peace policy framework would actually look like if we were to resolve the crisis in Ukraine?
1: Absolutely. And let's be clear that the crisis in Ukraine is a crisis for all of us. And you know, to my mind, that is the key message here, that the problem is not over there. The war is not over there. If we come to a nuclear confrontation, nuclear winter affects us all, and we're all going down the tubes. You know, we all starve. If, if enough nuclear weapons are exchanged, there's enough debris put into the atmosphere that agriculture basically, um, uh, you know, goes over the cliff and cannot produce enough to support most people. Most of us will die if. Uh, If there is a nuclear confrontation and it's just sheer idiocy that uh, people are not organizing like their lives depend on it to reinstitute uh, nuclear treaties. There should be a ban. I mean, we should just cut to the chase. There is a nuclear weapons ban. Um, that has been you know, authorized by the United Nations, which has been signed by the majority of nations around the world, doing that alone would basically provide the security that Russia has been looking for, that we all should be looking for. So let's not pretend and let's not be put into a box of advocating for Russia. This is about advocating for us this is about ensuring that we will have a planet here, a food supply for we, our families and our children to live on. This is not just the future, this is now. So I think that's number one, is understanding that this is about us. And the minute people get that we need to fight for our lives here, then, then the um, betrayal, the treachery on the part of of our bribed elected officials in service of the oligarchy in the war industry, uh, that will not last. And they will be thrown out or they will just you know, melt before the fury of an informed public. That is number one for us to realize this is about us. Um, signing on to the nuclear weapons ban, which really is the proper solution here, um, that could be achieved really you know, with the stroke of a pen, signing on and then beginning that process. Um, or instituting the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty or the ABM Treaty. That basically removes the uh, the fundamental threat, the existential threat that uh, Russia is facing. And then there are many things we can do from there. Um, You know, and they were outlined in the Minsk Accords. So this is not rocket science. Not only were they outlined in the Minsk Accords, but they were actually agreed to in a tentative fashion. There was a preliminary agreement that was brokered um, by by Turkey just after the war began. And why did that bite the dust? Because basically uh, the U.S. sent uh, the U.K.'s Prime Minister Boris johnson to essentially say no way we're not going to support this so we pulled the rug out from under that you know left to its own devices humanity would figure that out but we have kind of an elephant in the room right now which is the super armed um uh u.s empire and nato which is its handmaiden that are advocating on behalf of the war industry so um you know, it's pretty simple. And, and just to state some of those conditions so that people are aware of them and they know that they're not rocket science, in addition to, you know, um, alleviating the, the nuclear concerns and, you know, just take down the missiles. There, there are missiles right now in Poland and, I believe, Romania. These are NATO stations And they are nuclear-compatible missiles. So technically they are not offensive, but they could be offensive in the blink of an eye. And this is basically what Russia is all bent out of shape about. So it's as simple as dismantling those stations. Um, There is quite an ingrained struggle right now between Russian speakers uh, and Ukrainian speakers, essentially, in Ukraine. And this was... This has been, um, you know, kind of a historic, a longstanding historic problem, but it didn't have to get to this degree. Degree, so to deal with it now, you know, and the uh, the U.S. installed regime in Ukraine um, basically outlawed the Russian language and uh, was going to take away uh, Russia's long-standing port in Crimea, which had been a long-standing uh, part of the Soviet Union. So, um, you know, in order to kind of cool that conflict, the eastern provinces, you know, Russia should withdraw. They should go back as as federated states that have autonomy within the Ukrainian uh, federation. You know, we basically need to go back to borders from before the uh, uh, Russian invasion or special operation, whatever you want to call it, from that fateful day in February of this year. We need to go back to the borders as they existed before then, ensure that eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, has its security guarantees. Ensure that Russia has its security guarantees, no missiles, Ukraine remains uh, neutral. It should be admitted to the EU. And in fact, uh, Russia was all for that, uh, for supporting, you know, let Ukraine do what it wants to do. Just, you know, don't be a site for U.S.-sponsored uh, hostility, U.S.-sponsored, um, you know, full-spectrum dominance, which is the declared uh, US military policy. So that would, you know, basically those conditions right there would get us most of the way. And we could start with just an immediate ceasefire. We need a Christmas ceasefire. Let's get behind the Pope and religious leaders all over the world who are calling for a Christmas ceasefire. Let's do it. And let's go forward from there. There's much more, you know, that needs to be done. We need to basically move from a militarized world of international relations to a demilitarized, humanized world of international relations if we're gonna get out of here alive. But we can do that. And if we can get the, um, you know, the, uh, the tools of the military industrial complex the uh, economic and political elites on all sides of the conflict get them out of the position of calling the shots here. And let's put um, People, Planet in Peace you know, back in charge.
0: To my last question, 12 years ago, major media outlets in The Guardian, The New York Times, Le Monde, The Spiegel, Air collaborated to publish 250,000 classified U.S. documents that were attained and published by WikiLeaks. Now these media outlets, after almost um, 10 years, 11 years, have come out with a statement in support of Julian Assange and if I could quote them, they state, this indictment sets a dangerous precedent and threatens to undermine America's First Amendment and the freedom of the press. Why do you think it took so long for major media outlets that benefit so greatly from the work of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange to finally band together and take a stance on this issue?
1: I think, again, it's another sign of the times. It's a sign of the corruption of mainstream media. Uh, media has been corporatized. It's been uh, consolidated into the hands of a very powerful few. And, you know, on a daily basis, they fail to cover, you know, critical world events, you know. And going back as far as you like, you know, you can see every U.S. war really ginned up without exceptions from the incubator babies the mythology used to justify the first gulf war to the weapons of mass destruction to the yellow cake to uh remember the main you know and the um uh the spanish-american war at the turn of the uh you know going into 1900 um you know big media has been a big cheerleader for uh, for war. And we fundamentally need to restructure media. In the same way, you know, there's much ado right now about who owns Twitter. We should own Twitter, you know. This should be a public square which is responsible um, for, you know, uh, for having an even hand and being a non-partial arbiter and not being a um a collaborator of the cia and the fbi to basically wage propaganda on the american people so you know this is a patient uh right now that has multi-system failure and is hanging on by a thread on life support in the intensive care unit and each of us needs to consider ourselves that patient Our lives are hanging in the balance right now, and we need to fight for democracy, including free speech, including the liberation of Julian Assange and the many other political prisoners out there held by the U.S., but not only by the U.S., held by Russia, held by, you know, lots of countries around the world. Uh, We need those reforms. We need them now and we need to fight for them peacefully, but we need to fight for them like our lives depend on it. And, you know, the good news is that people get what's going on. They are not being fooled here. So there's an enormous amount of of public will that we can work with here um but we need to be uh you know very clear-eyed that the empire is not our friend that the economic elites and the political elites are also not our friend uh you know we need a an agenda for people planet and peace over profit that is fighting for a system change in a world that works for all of us that we can actually survive on. You know, this is kind of the moment of truth that's come back to haunt us right now. And uh, we need to step up to the plate.
0: Jill Stein, activist and former presidential candidate, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Great to talk with you as always, Anne.
0: And thank you guys for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and our alternative channels on Rumble and Telegram. And please, I urge all our viewers to take part in our year end crowdfunding campaign so we can continue in 2023. Without your support, we cannot do this. I'm your host, Raza. See you guys next time. These are the building blocks that make up our organization and the goals we would like to achieve. In order to continue our journalism and realize these values fundamental to our democracy, We need 1000 supporters in our crowdfunding campaign, donating only 5 euros or dollars per month via Patreon or bank account. Right now we have only 200 supporters and are not able to take the next step. Our future is in your hands. Strengthen independent journalism and be part of meaningful change.